So last week we looked at the path of heaven using Psalm 16 and concluded that being image bearers, beings with being filled with the image of God that we bear, disciples of Jesus Christ, that we do this as we come before God in worship, that we are filled as we come before God and that because of that we are able to build for heaven. Therefore, before we even look at another passage, it is logical, obvious, that the path of hell is the opposite to the things that we looked at last week, which was the path of heaven. It's that difference again between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Genesis 2, the choice of Adam and Eve to worship God, and Genesis 3, the choice of rebellion. So, if building for heaven is being loving, building with love in our lives, then building for hell would be chasing things that are hateful, reacting to other people in hate. If providing is part of building for heaven, as I said last week, then taking more than our share so there isn't provision for other people would be part of building for hell. If building for heaven is being a people of hope, living for things that give hope to other people, then living with things that give hopelessness to everybody else would be the path of hell. The opposite of heaven is, of course, hell. Within our thoughts on building for heaven last week, we looked at how building for heaven gives us confidence. That God has secured all things. That God has a plan for our protection, our inheritance, what we get from life for where we shall go and who we shall be. That even if the battle still rumbles on, we know that with God, the war for heaven to be built has been won in Christ. As a theological ideal, as a belief or a statement about faith, this is all well and good, this thing that we've been unpacking since the beginning of the year, that God is good, that God wants creation to be good, so it will be good as God has the power to make creation and everything in it good. And this is a simplified version of the Israelite belief in the Old Testament that God is working for the good of Israel, that God is working for the good of creation, that God is working to make things good. And that's something that we would agree with as Christians today, I'm sure. But what happens when our experience does not resemble that belief? Does not fit with what our faith declares is incompatible to that theological ideal that God is good and building for good. This is the experience of the psalmist, the writer of the psalm in Psalm 73. Verse 1 outlines that basic belief that he has. Maybe what he has been taught as a child, grew up with, told their own family. God is good to Israel. Those who are pure in heart, those who are image bearers, God is good to them. But in verse 1, there's another word right at the beginning, surely. And surely contains so much meaning. As it doesn't need to be there, does it? You could have a good hearty, God is good, to start the psalm. By including it, it creates a feeling, an element of doubt. 
Surely it's true. Surely this must be what, where this all ends up. Surely, despite it all, the thing I believe all my life must come true. So what happens to our neat image-bearing picture that we've been building up over the last couple of weeks when the world contradicts that statement that God is good to the image-bearer, to the pure of heart? What happens when the wicked, the arrogant, the cheats have no struggles? Verse 4. Are free from burden? Verse 5. Are healthy and loving life? Verse 5 again. What do we do when there are people who do not pull on the life traits of God to bear his image? Do not write scripture on their doorposts of their life for all to see. Do not wear it on their personality and the clothes of which make up the person that they are. People who set their hearts on anything but the things of God that build for heaven. Those who have pride as a necklace, verse 6, live comfortable with violence, where evil grows and grows without repentance, verses 7 to 9. In short, build for hell in every way. Every way which is opposite of heaven, that scripture declares is for human good. Where is the truth in our faith when people can speak ill of God so that others follow their ways, go, yeah, there is no God, and the world gets worse and worse. But they're comfortable, they're rich, they're enjoying life, and it gets greater and greater and greater, and there seems to be no problem with their denial of God and the things that God stands for. There is a problem, isn't there? With the statement, sin has consequences, when reality seems to suggest that the opposite may possibly be true. Well, the psalmist knows just how this feels. In verse 2, they write, my feet slip, I lost my foothold. When we see those around us who stand for evil thriving, why the weak suffer, and we make sacrifices to hold on to that truth of heaven. When we're living and we see that, our confidence is knocked. When we suffer and have done no wrong, yet those who say there is no God thrive, we wonder where the justice is. It's a hard place to be, as the psalm shows us from a faith perspective. Verses 13 to 17 of the psalm show this crisis. This loss of confidence in God and the way that God is working in the person who wrote the psalm's life. We have tried to be a Christian, maybe said no to certain ways of living so that we can do that better. Maybe not gained as much as we could because of those ways of life. And we can be left wondering, is it all in vain if we lose out anyway? If the worst happens to us, if we suffer despite trying to be the best person, the best Christian, the best follower of Jesus that we can be. We can be left with that question of why. Why me? When evil seems to be winning, when injustice is the law of the day, when the end does not seem to be coming, but just seems to be the end and we can't see anything else, when hell is all around, a reality day to day, what do we do? The truth as I see it, and it's the truth that we see painted in Genesis 3 and other places in Scripture, is that rebellion against God needs to be an option for true relationship to be found. 
The truth of the matter is that our world isn't fair. Destruction can fall on anyone at any time, regardless of what they think about God. And we know that from our own experience. The truth is that creation too can be rebellious from God. After all, does the voice of temptation in the story of Adam and Eve not come from within creation itself? And yet we're told creation is good, and it is good, and will be purified as heaven is built for, and when Christ comes again. But if God calls us to this world, here and now, to build for heaven, here and now, as I've said over the last six weeks or so, should we not be given some protection, some help, from God who clearly has the power as we found? But that's the thing, isn't it? Building for heaven, as we have seen so far, as we've looked at this in the Old Testament, so far, is not about our individual gain alone. But it's all about, increasingly about, the good of the other. Does God not create for the good of others? Does God not use power to bring about goodness amongst the hardship for others? Does God not sustain creation even when it's messed up by rebellion? Even when we go wrong, does God still not commit to his people and to you and me? Does Jesus not go to the cross for you? If we are building for heaven, bearing God's image for our own benefit, then maybe we've missed the point. And if we're missing the point, we might as well build for hell. The psalmist, at the point of crisis, the point of all the questions that I've asked this morning in verse 17, enters the sanctuary of God, the temple where people worship. And it's at this point in the psalm where they begin to understand what is going on. That the point isn't where we are or even what is going on in our lives right now, but the point is where we are going, where we go from here. If life is built for power right now, for wealth right now, for inheritance right now, then where is the guarantee that those things that we're building on, those firm foundations, will last? Is it a firm foundation? There's no guarantees, are there? Because as we've already said and explored, the truth is, in this day and age, the way that our world works is that things pass away. Things crack, things break, things tarnish, things run out, nothing lasts forever. When a rich person dies, they cannot take their wealth with them, nor their honour, nor their influence and power. And so in verse 17, the psalmist talks of the future like someone rowing a boat, going forward into the future, looking at what has been, but can't see clearly what is coming behind them because of the way that they're facing. If the place you have travelled so far is a place of selfish building for now, What is going to happen when the things that they can see and built for can't be taken further any forward anymore? If the boat they're travelling in, the oars they use to propel themselves forward, the wood that the boat is made out of is made out of selfish, broken wood, what will be the end result? Eventually it will break, eventually it won't be there anymore, and then where will be the person in the boat? If they're a rich person with lots of wealth, but their wealth runs out and actually they have no friends to help them, then maybe they'll end up on the street. 
If they lose their job but were a horrible boss, then employment might be a little bit harder to come by than if they were a good, nice boss, easy to get on with, fair boss. If they fall ill but did not invest in a cure because it didn't benefit them at the time, then maybe they'll suffer more than they would have done if they'd invested to help others in the past. The problem with living with self-power and self-governance, is that when things go wrong, as can happen at any day of our life, all you have to rely on is self. And sometimes, as we probably all know, self isn't enough. And when viewed like this, the comfort of this life, the building for me right now of this life, suddenly seems like more slippery ground. Life can change. Destruction is quick. So the path of heaven and hell seem to come to this so far in the Old Testament. That heaven is the image bearing, is investing, is focusing not on building for life right now, but for things that will last beyond our own earthly existence, will benefit others beyond the amount of time we are here living. Building for heaven gives us confidence that the things we build for will last, will become part of the new heaven and earth as we see promised right the way through scripture. Building for hell is making the best of what life can be here and now, but with no hope, no guarantee, no confidence for the future. No guarantee that what we have will guarantee from this day or the next day or a year from now, let alone into eternity, for that is the way of the world. Which we live for, as you probably know, will depend on what we believe about God. If we believe that God is involved, powerful, sustainer of eternal life, that God cares, then the obvious option is to build for heaven, to invest in those things, in short, to invest in what we know and we find out about God through scripture. If we don't believe that, then we might as well enjoy life now because the future at best is unknown. And these are the questions or the question facing the psalmist. And they seem to answer them in the sanctuary of God that they stepped into in verse 17. That in verses 23 to 26, they state that God is involved, that those who are opposed to God's ways in verses 27 to 28 are insecure and are living for ultimate destruction. But the key thing of this psalm, where the answer comes from, is standing in the temple, gathered in worship with the saints, with the other image bearers, with the other followers of Yahweh, the other followers of God. Last week, we thought about the importance of looking to and following the image bearer as the start of building for heaven, of needing to be filled before we can go and pour into something else. This week, it seems that worship is a task that declares heaven to the other, to the other saints, to the other people living around us. It's an undertaking not just for our own infilling, but to encourage us, those around us. To be able to see heaven clearly, we need to be investing in others so that through them we see God working and building. As we disciple, we encourage image bearing. 
As we see God appearing, working, using God's powers for the good of others, we see what God is like, we see what God can do. Seeing the truth of Christ in our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what being part of church, that's what building for heaven is all about. It's that unnerving experience of seeing the next line of a song that we're singing together, maybe in church on a Sunday morning, and not being able to sing it because of what we're facing. It's just too hard. You can't get the words out. But then hearing others sing it with such confidence, knowing that they have trod the hard path also. It's seeing the change in a viewpoint, lifestyles, reaction to others as someone has an experience with God, maybe over just a day, maybe over a couple of weeks, maybe over an entire lifetime, just seeing how God is working. It's seeing and hearing the voice of God through tongues, through pictures, through prophecies, through the words in the Bible as the Spirit moves and reveals it to us. It's the faithful, simple, even stumbling prayer of a young child, an older person, or somewhere in between because of the faith they have and the impact it's having on them in that moment or in the future. It's the encouragement of conversation, the deep calling to deep over a coffee or a tea or a beer down the pub. It's the hallelujah, the amen, as we testify to what God is doing in our own lives or somebody else's life. It's the hearing of another story of the path through hell where God stood with them despite it all and brought heaven around them despite what they were going through. It's the filling of a church at a funeral so there's only standing room because the faithful believer didn't just believe what they believed but lived it out. It's the observation of someone stepping into the waters of baptism because they believe in their heart and mind that Jesus died for them and has risen to give them eternal life right now for eternity. It's the stepping of someone towards a group of people in membership because they say, I see what God is doing in this place and I want to be part of it and I want to build too. And it's more than a preacher, any preacher can put into words. It's more than a teacher can give or teach or tell people how to do. Because when we worship, we are testifying to a God who does not give up, will not give up, whatever the day may bring. However much of hell there may be around us, however much it's hard to see heaven coming here and now, however much it's hard to believe that heaven will come in its fullness one day with Jesus, God is working. All these things and more encourage us to see that God is not a theological ideal, not an untrue abstract statement, not a far-off unrealistic faith expectation, but the true and living God who is building for heaven right now in the midst of a world that so often seems to stand for the things (laughs) of hell, like the experience of the psalmist in the psalm that we've been looking at. A God that will keep on pouring out the blessings on heaven, on you in this life and beyond, maybe even in ways that we wouldn't necessarily expect as we keep on bearing this true image of God now in this life, knowing that it will last into eternity. And with that in mind, before we sing and we close our time together, we're just going to, I'm just going to pray. Let's pray.